My name is Ari Van Persum, and I'm our Director of Business Development here at MedCurity. Getting started, I wanted to just give you a quick overview of what we will be covering today in our 30 minutes together. Essentially, in order to understand what's ahead for cybersecurity, we need to look behind us in 2021 and see what we learned, because that informs everything that is shaping the path for 2022. So we're going to cover that first. We're also going to cover just a couple telehealth updates because this is a big part of our world with our quick shift because of COVID, as well as prolonged usage of telehealth and the consequences of that and things you need to be aware of. Regulatory changes, as you are very aware in healthcare, there are changes all the time, especially to the regulations around it, um, but specifically to HIPAA and elements we will cover some of those changes today. The, those explanations can get rather in-depth and complicated. So if you do have questions in that category specifically, we can follow up offline and talk about it practically for your practice. And then lastly, I'll end with some practical application items just because there's going to be a lot of content and um, a lot of statistics. And sometimes it can feel really overwhelming and um, scary like it's not attainable to even begin tackling these things, but I'll send you off with some really practical things that you can take away and apply today. So with that, let's get started. Okay, looking at 2021 in review for cybersecurity, there were some statistics that I wanted to point out, just because if we're looking at trends holistically or as a whole and what that trend looks like, ultimately, the average cost of a HIPAA breach, which that includes the financial pen penalty, the um, whether it's a credit reporting or credit um, monitoring for patients, whether that's identity theft services, the administrative burden piece often isn't talked about in the news when it comes to the financial side of it. So that 9.23 million average cost is a culmination of all of the financial administrative pieces to that. So what we see from the year prior in 2020 is that it definitely increased a significant amount. Increasing by $2 million on an average basis is a big, big jump and something to be noted just because the trend is going upward. You'll see a similar trend on that second line is the number of breaches are increasing, which I assume most people are aware of just with the headlines and um, conversations even on these webinars, we bring this up a lot. Lastly, for statistics, there were about 45.7 million people affected by these types of breaches in 2021. And just a quick note, it's the highest number since the record-breaking Anthem hacking incident that happened in 2015. So we are reaching record-breaking numbers in this past year, which is really overwhelming and can be scary. But remember, I'm setting a framework because it informs how we can address this this year. What else we learned from the past year are the types of exploitations that are happening in terms of how these ransomware attacks are occurring. First and foremost are phishing emails. This is because you can set up as many security parameters as possible, but it takes about one click to get inside your network. So phishing emails are proven to be the most successful. So this is the top area we've, we see the most activity in. The second one is RDP exploitation. This is remote desktop protocol, which essentially is just remoting onto a desktop elsewhere so that you can access your 
on-site computer desk. This is something that third-party IT vendors do often. So you'll see this have a common thread through our conversation of making sure that we are tying up all loose ends with all our third parties. Um, but that was a common way for ransomware uh, bad actors to enter our networks. And then lastly, we saw software vulnerabilities being in this top three. Um, I wanted to give just a quick example so you can have some context around this. There's a lot of um, news reporting around this in particular. It's called Log4j. And I'm not a tech expert or an IT director by any means, so I'm just going to keep this piece brief so you understand how it affects um, in a widespread manner. So in short, what this software vulnerability is, is Log4j is a feature that allows reporting of errors to your system. So it's logging this information. Um, so when you get the 404 alert website doesn't exist, that's something that your um, system will document and send for reporting. So this is one capturing information, and it also is a door for third parties to access as well as remediate. Um, so because there is a door here through this specific vulnerability, it also is a door for bad actors, and it's something that they identified this past year and are now exploiting. So this became a really big conversation because logging is a fundamental feature of almost all software. So it makes this vulnerability very widespread. And not only is it common in software, it's also very common in cloud services. So um, why this had such a big um, spotlight on it is because even in healthcare, but across all industries, moving to cloud hosting services is a really great step in security and moving towards um, hosted information when it comes to backups and making sure the proper security measures are in place. But this reminds us that software vulnerabilities can be widespread even into cloud services. So there are quite a few ways for bad actors to be getting our patients information. And we learned this last year. The fifth point is really interesting. And I think one of the biggest points I might make today is that ransomware groups last year, they suffered some disruptions from US authorities about halfway through the year, but the FBI observed that ransomware groups didn't just keep targeting big game, quote unquote, um, meaning they weren't just targeting health systems anymore because of suffering those disruptions. They moved and redirected towards small and mid-sized organizations to avoid that spotlight. So what that shift means is essentially things that we've been talking about for the last couple months and even this past year of how historically with these types of events and the fear of ransomware, oftentimes these smaller organizations feel as if they can fly under the radar when historically that probably was true. Um, but now because of this obvious shift in focus, we now know that bad actors are going after small and mid-sized healthcare businesses because they aren't getting as much um, pushback from the federal authorities, as well as they recognize that they don't have as much budget around investing in their IT support systems. Lastly, targeting the cloud, I kind of already touched on this, but because of the vulnerabilities that were found out, 
they are targeting cloud services. Um, and this is in addition to knowing that if they gain direct access to some sort of on, on site or local device, so maybe a server on site that's moving data to the cloud, if they can get access to the on site device, they're moving laterally to the cloud. So they want access there. And so they're getting creative on how to target those um, items. So once again, I'm gonna keep bringing this up because I don't want the takeaway to be, to be fear and feeling as if we have no shot at this, which that is not true. I'm just setting the framework to show you that this is a very large issue that we need to talk about. Um, and ultimately there are action items that we can do to address this. So this slide is one I'm sure you've seen before if you've come to these webinars. This is informally known as the wall of shame on the Office of Civil Rights website. Um, I took this screenshot this morning, so it's about as up-to-date as you could get it. And I highlighted one example there on purpose. We're gonna dive into that a little bit to explain some points that I wanna make. But overall, if you're not super familiar with this dashboard itself, Essentially, if you have over 500 medical records breached, you are required to report that to the OCR immediately, where they publicly display all of those breaches, including the, the details of what happened. So you'll notice on the right side of the screen, the type of breach, more often than not, it's a hacking IT incident, which informs our last slide. Everything is on trend with cybersecurity being a big, big focus for all of us. So you can go look at this and see where the trends are. You see a lot come out all of the time. Um, but to talk about South Shore Hospital Corporation here, what I wanted to point out is that what they did post breach. So I highlighted this part because one, we can assume essentially what happened in this breach based off of what their actions were after the fact. So looking at stronger password requirements, enabling multi-factor authentication, and retraining employees on data privacy and security awareness essentially alludes to the fact that it's more often than not a, a phishing attack. And so it was an employee who clicked on a link or entered their credentials because they were fooled by some really well-written email, because that's the theme. Um, that they needed to reset their passwords. So simply by entering in those credentials, they gave the bad actor access to the whole system, which has now led to a two-year corrective action plan and um, the Office of Civil Rights being their best friend through all of that and walking them through what remediation really looks like. But besides that point I wanted to make is those activities that they did are after the fact to implement better security measures is frankly what the industry at large is moving to, meaning these are the best practices that we really want to highlight. And on this next slide, you're going to see some of the top 10 best cybersecurity practices that are out there right now. Um, and we have been seeing this in conversation widespread across all organization sizes. So what I wanted to point out is looking at how these four that I have arrows next to really apply to what we just talked about. So email protection systems, whether that's having a banner on any external email saying 
interact with caution, whether you're, you're blocking all attachments, whether you have uh, software in place that's clicking on links and um, checking to see if they're safe and legitimate sources. More often than not, we don't have the resources to implement all of the software protections that we want to. So a really practical application to email protection systems is phishing simulated emails, which is you can get a, a vendor to take all of your employee employee emails, send them um, a fake phishing email. And so you're able to see from an admin level, which employees are more susceptible to clicking, to entering information so that you can give a more targeted approach on additional training, as well as by communicating to your employees that this is happening and they're gonna be much more aware and it's gonna be developing this healthy paranoia of those emails, which you as an organization desperately want because like I mentioned at the beginning, you can have a lot of security measures in place, but if you don't have um, the awareness and the training on your employees end, um, then you're missing a really critical point here. Um, number three, access management. Um, you notice in the example I just gave, but they incorporated multi-factor authentication. This is something that is not only a common requirement with cybersecurity insurance, but it's just a best practice to move towards because of the issues with pass password security. And um, an additional thing that's made the industry move towards this is um, single sign-on because the amount of systems that we would need to implement MFA on, if you also implement single sign-on with multi-factor authentication on that single sign-on, it will essentially eliminate quite a few steps for your employees. So that's something that we want to encourage people towards when it comes to access management. Um, incident response, I'll come back to vulnerability management in a second, but incidents response, having that plan in place is really critical so that you have an immediate response to breaches or to unauthorized access incidents, making sure that you have it documented, you have people trained on what's gonna happen, um, this is a really practical one that frankly doesn't require any money, it just requires attention and time. Um, so make sure that you have a policy that documents in a procedure that you are practicing. So vulnerability, vulnerability management, um, what this essentially attributes to with cybersecurity is we talk about network vulnerability assessments quite a bit because one, it's just this really easy way to scan your external IP addresses, your internal IP addresses, and make sure that any doors that could be locked in aren't, um, we remediate that immediately. It's just a really clear picture into the basic security of your network. And managing your vulnerabilities holistically as an organization is not only gives you visibility into what's going on, but it um, allows you to document the plan that you have in place. Moving into some of our regulatory updates. So the first being telehealth. This is one of the two areas that um, the public health emergency allows for exemption from enforcement. So what essentially that means, you'll see listed here on the slide. And we just um, got another extension for the public health emergency. So this is gonna last through April 16th, 2022, where they evaluate again, and it extends for segments of 90 days. So essentially it means that telehealth has these waivers and flexibilities, meaning that you don't necessarily need 
a HIPAA compliant platform in place to be doing this. Um, but frankly, our responsibility as covered entities is to protect patient information. Um, so although you won't necessarily be audited against this piece, if there is a breach, it still will open the door to other areas that aren't exempt from audit. So when we talk about telehealth, yes, these are still in place. And while our demand of telehealth appointments has decreased, it's definitely going to be an area of healthcare that's not going anywhere. So we do need to keep this in mind. I just wanted to bring some stats up because it helps create that framework once again, but 90% of clinicians are conducting remote telehealth sessions at this point. This includes early adopters pre-pandemic, but it's just such a widespread number that covers most of the healthcare industry. And so that makes the following statistics really impactful of how 52% of patients are refusing telehealth because they distrust, distrust the security. On the, the clinical side, you can see that about a third of patients' data are, is compromised when conducting remote telehealth sessions. This is all due to a study that was performed. And you can also see that they, their confidence is pretty low when it comes to the security of telehealth. So it's something to keep in mind. And we mentioned things to consider at the bottom just because having your business associate agreement with your telehealth platform is critical because if there is a breach with the third party, you definitely want to have that shared responsibility as well as um, understanding and trust with your vendor to know that they're doing their due diligence. And then lastly, even though we still have these flexibilities in place, making sure that you are making a, a move to a permanent telehealth solution that is HIPAA compliant and is proven to be secure is really important just for the um, trust of patients as well as once this public health emergency does end, those flexibilities will be gone. Other regulatory updates that we need to keep top of mind, I'm going to go through pretty quickly here, um, but in January of 2021, uh, Roger Severino uh, stepped down as the director of the OCR and um, Biden appointed Lisa Pino, and she is has an incredible background where she served as the deputy, deputy assistant secretary for civil rights at the US Department of Agriculture. Um, and then most recently as the deputy commissioner for the New York State Department of Health, where she helped with COVID response. Um, and then in the Biden, not Biden, excuse me, in the Obama administration, she worked for the US Department of Homeland Security, where she was responsible for renegotiating hundreds of vendor procurements and as well as establishing new cybersecurity regulatory protections. And this was um, in the wake of a specific breach in 2015. If you don't remember, it was the US Office of Personnel Management that um, was breached and it involved the information about 4 million federal personnel. So this was a really big deal. And she was leading the charge of that inv investigation as well as the um, protections that came out of it. So there's a lot that we can look at when it comes to the director of the OCR and kind of assume what they're going to focus on when it comes to enforcement. So specifically with Lisa Pino, we can see, assume that she, there's going to be a bit more scrutiny um, with vendors, meaning our business associates. So 
understanding that um, we do have those appropriate business associate agreements in place is something we can probably assume a lot more focus is going to be given to. And probably a lot of focus to the cybersecurity side of things as well. For the Office of Civil Rights in general, just because we went about a year without um, a leader in place to enforce some of these um, initiatives, as well as just HIPAA in general. Um, one, you probably noticed that there were quite a few less um, investigations that probably could have happened pertaining to the number of breaches that actually occurred. This was due to a change in leadership, but something that didn't decrease in activity was the HIPAA right of access initiative. I'm sure you all noticed that in 2021, there were 25 penalties for HIPAA right of access violations, which totaled over $1.5 million. Um, so this is something that essentially emphasized the right of a patient or a patient's personal representative to receive their medical records in a timely manner without being inappropriately charged. Um, so ultimately, our takeaways from this is that there is an initiative backing this focus, so it's something we definitely need to give attention to. But the second thing we need to pay attention to is that it really takes one person complaining because there is an initiative in place. There will be given manpower to go investigate. And oftentimes when this door is opened, they're going to look at a lot more than just your right of access policy or procedure. They could look at quite a bit more and the penalty could increase from there. Number three, so this is all wrapped around the 21st Century Cures Act, which this one in particular could get really deep really quick. So I'm just going to brush over the elements that we need to be aware of because coming October 6th of this year, the definition of electronic health information um, is expanding. So it's going to encompass all electronic protected health information contained within a designated record set as defined by HIPAA. So this is something to notice because it's currently covering all e electronic patient health information, but in your designated record set, this also includes the paper elements. So as that approaches, feel free to get it implemented beforehand. There's no, not necessarily a reason to wait to October 6th if we're aware of it. Um, so things to keep in mind. Four and five, the privacy rule updates and the Safe Harbor Act, I'll just quickly cover because not a ton has happened here, but they're things that we want to keep top of mind. So ultimately, um, in January 2021, the Safe Harbor Act passed where it was a rulemaking which defined how we um, it was a, a law defining and incentivizing health care to align with industry best practices, hoping to incentivize them to invest in security. So ultimately what the Safe Harbor Act means is that if you can prove for 12 months prior to a breach event occurring that you're following these best practices, they will reduce the investigation time and they'll also reduce the penalty if they find that you are adhering to it. So what the actual update is here is because the law passed, we're now waiting for the rule. What the rule is, is it's essentially going to define how we as healthcare will be evaluated against it. So 
this is something to keep in mind. We will be seeing this come out soon. And this, this is similar to the privacy rule in the sense of um, HIPAA is the law and the privacy and security rules are the, the ways that it's defined on how you're evaluated against adhering to HIPAA. So the privacy rule underwent a couple um, potential changes and we talked about that early last year, but we still haven't seen the final rule come through with all of the edits that were proposed. So we're still waiting on that. And once we do get the final rule, we will be here to update you on it. In terms of a couple other things around Safe Harbor, I'll just keep moving into this because there's a little bit of um, confusion around it. Safe Harbor law is not a requirement. It is your choice to participate. So keep that in mind. While we do know that we've gotten to a point where proper controls in place around security, a breach can still happen. So really we are looking at this initiative from the government as an effort to shift as the healthcare environment is shifting. So they're seeing that they need to honor your best practices because the breach might still be happening. So by aligning with these laws and these industry best practices, it really is a place of um, defense for you as an organization to protect um, your patient information. There's one distinction that I want to make because um, another safe harbor law came out in December of, I believe, 2020 or maybe it was 2021, but it was also healthcare and it was getting around the Stark rule, essentially allowing health systems to help fund cybersecurity best practices in the community. So don't get those two confused, um, just as a side note. And what the safe harbor law truly is, is something that we've really covered and it gives you a chance to defend your organization. So lastly, as we wrap up here, the practical application, and what you can be focused on for 2022, you'll notice some general themes here. So the first being the network vulnerability assessment. So I mentioned that this is really a scan of your environment to make sure that your doors are locked. Um, so this graphic here gives you a good example of the difference between penetration testing and vulnerability assessment. So a network vulnerability assessment is locking all the doors to your house to make sure no one can get in. And penetration testing is trying to break into the house. So the difference between the two is one network vulnerability assessments are significantly cheaper to perform for your organization and are a really great place to start. But if you're an organization who is very confident in all of your IP addresses being secure, then maybe penetration testing is the next best step because essentially you're gonna be paying someone to proactively try to break into your network, which is what happens with bad actors. So this is proving to be a really great best practice and almost um, considered a norm in healthcare. Um, second, phishing simulations. I definitely brought this up earlier, but this is something that is also becoming a normal practice in healthcare. One, it's a great way to train our employees and create that healthy paranoia. Um, and it helps you attest to having trained your workforce if you are breached in this area. So it's a defensive measure, but also a really great place to equip your, your team to com combat this. 
Number three, business associate agreements. If you haven't reviewed your business associate agreements recently, it's definitely something you should go do. Make sure that you have shared responsibility, that you, you trust your business associates with any patient information that you are sharing or transmitting to them. Um, that's something that you could go to do today um, and make sure that you don't have any agreements still in place with vendors you don't work with. Third parties, pretty general bullet point, but what I wanna get across is similar to number three, that any parties that you work with, especially IT, if you have a third party IT vendor, go check in with them, ask them what vulnerabilities they've been seeing in software, what they've been doing to patch those. Show that you are interested and very aware of the vulnerabilities because frankly, you are the entity responsible for the risk. So showing them that you are making sure that they are keeping it top of mind will strengthen the relationship between the two. Um, and then also on the, the flip side of that, getting third-party assessments of your organization done, whether that's a network assessment or a security risk assessment, um, an outside perspective truly is so valuable to your organization to get that non-biased, review of everything in place so that you have a really clear picture into what your vulnerabilities look like. So that, that really does lead me into the last bullet point, which while MedCurity supports your network vulnerability assessments, we do phishing simulations and we have a business associate agreement template if you do need one. The main area that we do love to support is that security risk analysis and your risk management plan. And these pieces are really critical because we just talked all about telehealth and new systems and softwares that you may have implemented. And essentially the entire purpose of a security risk analysis is evaluating new workflows so that you can uncover any new risks. So if you haven't done a security risk analysis in the last six months, this is definitely something you should consider doing. Um, one, it's required under HIPAA. It's a big piece of participating in MIPS, as well as from a defensive and understanding place as an organization, it gives you really great visibility into what you need to work on so that you don't get breached. Um, and then the risk management piece of this is it's showing that you're being proactive. So you know where your risks are because of your SRA or your NBA, and you're doing something about it. And you're documenting the work that you're doing because what we see with the Safe Harbor Act is that government entities are moving towards honoring your proven efforts. So your risk management, what it does is it documents all those efforts for you so that you can prove you are trying to align with the industry best practice and that you can defend the work that you're doing. So all in all, I know I'm a bit over on this. There's a lot of information that I wanted to cover, but um, MedCurity, we are your HIPAA compliance resource through United Rheumatology. So if you have questions on any of these practical application items, please let us know because we would love to work with you and your practice relations manager on finding a solution or um, a third party that could help give you more insight and visibility into these areas. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day look forward to supporting you however we can in the future.